Um, and uh, it's just a really great opportunity for us to take some time to be reminded of what God's people were reminded us of as they pilgrimed, as they were sort of on their pilgrimage to the Holy Land for the Holy Days in the Old Testament. This morning we're in Psalm 125. Steve read it, and I'm going to read it one more time, and then we're going to spend some time looking at it. Psalm 125 says this, and I'll put it up on the screen. To those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. From this time forth and forevermore, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So this psalm is an expression of trust and confidence in the Lord. The Psalms of Ascent, again, as we had said uh, before, are the psalms that the people, the Israelites, the people of God, would recite as they were on their journey from wherever it was they lived to Jerusalem for the holy days. And they did that a few different times of the year, and it often was a journey for many that took weeks. And this journey um, mirrors so well the journey that any Christian actually finds themselves on in life as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of his, as one of the people of God, saying, I see that there is a final place that I am going to be at with God, a, a holy city, a place that I know I will feel truly at home. But until I arrive there, I am a sojourner in a land that is not really my own. Surrounded by dangers, I'm surrounded by enemies, I'm surrounded by conflict, I'm surrounded by confusion. And we've been talking about that these last several weeks in looking at these psalms that people would recite. This psalm this morning is one that kind of picks up where we left off last week in talking about what it looks like to trust God. That ultimately what we're called to do as followers of Jesus, as Christians, if you are one here this morning, all of what you are called to do is rooted in, first and foremost, trust in God. Uh, because he calls us to do all kinds of things, and if we actually trust him and believe what he says about himself and what he says about us and what he says about the world, then we can follow him. If we don't really trust him and we don't have a trust for him, then all the things that he calls us to do can seem overwhelming and exhausting and confusing and scary, and they won't really make sense. The beginning of this psalm is an expression simply of that trust. We read this in the first two verses. To those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth forevermore. The psalm tells us that if you trust in God, you are as firmly fixed in life and in this world as a mountain. Now, I'm not a geologist, and you're probably not a geologist or a person who studies geography or anything else related to mountains, but you probably know this about mountains. They don't fall over very often. They don't move very much. There is nothing more firmly fixed than that. 
So one who trusts in the Lord, says the psalmist, is as firmly fixed in this world as a mountain. And if you've ever been on a mountain, uh, sometimes you get these sort of scared moments where you forget how firmly fixed a mountain is or maybe how firmly fixed you are because of the height at which you find yourself. The beginning of this psalm is the psalmist saying quite simply, I trust in God and the one who trusts in God will experience these benefits. Now this word for trust It means to be so confident of something that it's like you don't even really think much about it. It's the things that we are so confident in that we uh, take them for granted, that we kind of assume that they're always going to be there. Ultimately, what this psalmist is talking about is confidence in God. Confidence in who God is. That is what this word means. This is the subject of this psalm. This is the thing that apparently will make someone as firmly fixed in this world and in this life as a mountain. This is the kind of confidence you have without even thinking. I'm confident in gravity. I don't think a lot about it. Uh, I don't find myself worrying that I'm going to float off the surface of the earth that uh, if I fall, I won't go down. If I jump off something, I won't go down. I, uh, I'm pretty confident in gravity to a point that I don't need to have discussions and debates with people about it. I don't find myself waking up in the morning freaking out. What if there's no gravity today? That's really going to mess up my plans. I mean, to be fair, it would really mess up your plans for the day, right? If you woke up and there was no gravity, you'd be like, well, I'm going to have to move some things around. See what I did there? Uh, And I'm going to have to figure this out. But we don't find ourselves waking up worrying about that. We would call that an irrational fear, something I am very familiar with. We take for granted the fact that we have water where we live. Uh, Oh boy, do we have water where we live. So much water, right? Uh, And if you, uh, now what we don't always feel like we have is the sun. Uh, We have it right now, and it's great. Uh, It's so wonderful. Maybe a little bit too much sun today, but we'll see. Uh, We can hang out in here, or you can just go find some water. We take for granted the fact in the Pacific Northwest that the water is just going to fall out of the sky. It's going to accumulate everywhere. If anything, there's going to be too much of it, and you're going to wish you weren't stepping in it all the time. You go down to Arizona, uh, you don't take the water for granted, you take the sun for granted. You wake up and you are confident when when you walk outside, that burning ball of fire will be up there and it will dictate everything about the way your day is about to go probably. You have confidence that that's going to happen. You don't really think much about it. In a good marriage to someone, you will have confidence that that person will be there for you the next day without really thinking about it. I talk to so many guys who are in the later years of marriage who will look back and just sort of, in, sort of feeling astounded say, I can't believe that she's hung in there with me, right? And they kind of say it like, I got to be honest, there were some years in there where I really took it for granted. I just kind of assumed that we were just going to keep doing this thing called marriage together, even though I wasn't 
totally maybe investing in it. I was not, not, not maybe, I was not investing in it as much as I should have been. I was not appreciating that relationship as much as I should have been. And I've heard wives say the very same things. And yet, it's funny how we can have confidence enough in our marriage or in our spouse or in their faithfulness or their loyalty to us that we wake up and we think again, as we plan out our days, we go, I'm probably not going to expect to wake up in the morning and go, oh, they left me? Well, okay, again, I'm going to have to move some things around. I'm going to have to change my day a little bit because this has a tremendous impact on my life itself. When you've lost someone or you've lost something that you had such confidence in was going to be there that you didn't even really think much about it on a day-to-day basis, it completely and totally threw you. It was like the ground got ripped out from under you. This, the psalmist says, is something that you will never experience in God if you trust him. Because trust ultimately is this confidence in God. And what it brings, said the psalmist, in, this first, in these first two verses is simply this. Confidence in God brings us stability and it brings us hope. There is absolutely no stability and hope that you could ever experience that would come even close to the kind of stability and hope that come from confidence in who God himself is and what he tells us about himself. The confidence, we can have confidence in other things, and we certainly can find hope in other things. But the confidence and hope that faith and trust in God brings is on a whole other level. I think we all, in our own ways, over the last few years, have experienced what it's like to lose confidence in some things that we felt confident in before. All of the changes that have happened over the last few years, all of the things that have happened with the pandemic, and everything else that seemed to not, you know, regular life in the world didn't slow down either, right? And so all these things happening on top of one another, so many of the things that we took for granted or that we had confidence in, we found, finding our, we found ourselves questioning, going, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I should, I don't know if that's going to be there tomorrow. I, even the, and it isn't even that these things let us down. Although in some cases they did. It's not even that these things failed us, although in some cases they did. It's oftentimes the fact that we were just separated from these things that we had confidence in. We were separated for so long and isolated that we began to experience life without those things. And we realized in that moment what happens when we put our confidence and our hope in something other than God. You see, uh, the thing about trusting in God... And the confidence and hope that it gives us is, according to the psalmist, it is a confidence and hope that we will never hope to find anywhere else. But what we will do, many of us, most of us, all of us, what we will all do and be tempted to do throughout our lives is find confidence and hope in something else. We will be tempted to trust other things. We will be tempted because we live in the flesh and because we live in a world that is constantly trusting everything but God. And so as we uh, are tempted to trust in other things, it's not that we wake up and we choose to not trust God consciously. It's not that we wake up and say, I don't want to be with him today. I don't want to follow him. I don't trust the things that he says. I'm just not really sure how firm that mountain really is that he makes me into. Instead, what we do is we simply choose to trust and have confidence in other things. 
My son and I have been reading through the Lord of the Rings, so get ready. It's going to be about five years of Lord of the Rings references, um, and uh, you won't understand most of them probably unless you read it, but then I'll spend half a sermon explaining them and you'll fall asleep. I'm just kidding. Although he does fall asleep really well. When I read it, I recommend it. It's like, it's like great. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, there's a ring. I know, right? I'm really, I'm really, I've really wrapped my mind around it. And this ring is a ring of great power, and this ring was created by the Dark Lord Sauron. And he created this ring um, as a way of sort of encapsulating, of containing his power and his wrath and his, and his anger and his hatred and his spite and all of these horrible things, his desire to corrupt. He, he placed in this ring those things. Um, and so when he's wearing this ring, he sort of has those things at their peak abilities. Uh, but early in the movie, we see that there's a battle, and, and his, you know, the problem with the ring is you get your hand cut off, and then you don't have the ring on your body. There you go. So he gets his hand cut off, he loses the ring, and he loses the battle. Now, um, the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, um, has indicated that there are some parallels and some metaphors within the way that he wrote this. Because what, what we would do is we would look at that and go, why on earth would he be so foolish as to create a physical object in which to put all of his abilities and all of his power and his confidence so that then that thing could be destroyed and he would be without power? We go, that doesn't make any sense. Nobody would ever do anything that foolish. That's just bad writing, J.R.R. Tolkien. Well, you're not allowed to say that, first of all. You're just not. But also, that's actually exactly what we do. And this is the parallel that he saw between human beings and what we do with sin in the world. That we choose to put ourselves, to invest ourselves. We don't do it all at once. We do it slowly over time, over the course of a life. We begin placing our confidence and our trust in other things, our hope in other things. It's the things everyone around us places their confidence and trust in who don't know the Lord. We begin to place it in the job that we find. We are desperate to find something to do, to put our name on, to, to put our work and effort into that will ultimately be able to, uh, to, to give us the confidence, the hope that we can only find in God. We don't do it consciously much of the time, especially Christians don't. We do it just because that's what everyone else does. And as we're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, we go, what I do know for sure is when I'm supposed to be at work. And I know when I'm at work, how hard I'm supposed to work. And I know that with all the other unpredictable things in life, maybe if I just focus on the reputation that I'm developing and the work that I'm doing and, and the person that my peers and the people that I work with see me as, maybe that is something that I can take real value and pride in. One of the struggles that we find in a world where you live that that happens so much is you have a lot of people desperately trying to find something to devote their lives to that will be fulfilling enough to take the place of God. And that doesn't exist. If you've ever felt that way, this is a common thing for a lot of young people to feel. To be like, I know I need to do something with my life, but I also know it needs to be so humongous, so significant, so personally fulfilling, so existentially awesome, uh, and I'm just not sure where I'm going to find that. And, you know, I know they're hiring at Home Depot, but I just don't think that's going to do it for me. But we do. We begin to look at things like what we do for a living. We look at the pleasures that we receive from life, simply enjoying life, 
Simply, uh, there are those who live to work, and there are those who work to live, right? And you say, I'm not so wrapped up in my career, my reputation, or just the fulfillment I might get from my job, or, or the things that I do, or the thing that I see myself as being in this world. I just like being happy with people. I like, I like enjoying the people around me, the things that I do, having enough time to really relax and really rest and really enjoy uh, the day-to-day things that happen. And, and, and as we begin to like, uh, invest ourselves in those things more and more, we find ultimately that they're fleeting. And so we have to invest ourselves in them more and more to greater levels and greater degrees. And yet we find as we get older, as we change life stages, as things happen, as people come and go out of our lives, that they're just not something that will bring us the stability and hope that we really had wanted. We look at money, a way of controlling uh, the situations and the circumstances around us, and we say, if I have enough money, if I have it saved in the right places, if I have it all lined up in the right way, then I know that my confidence and hope can be in that thing. We even look at our own families, and we say, the people around me that I'm investing in, that's where my hope can lie, that's where my confidence can lie, that's where our trust, really, if we're honest, ends up being. But for many... It can even be something like religion. What we saw of the Pharisees who killed Jesus when he came with the incredibly good news that our confidence and our hope is in God who sent a Messiah to save us from having to do it ourselves, their response to him was, we want to do it ourselves. Our traditions and our rules and our religion and our self-righteousness that comes from that is so powerful. Our confidence and our hope is completely wrapped up in the reputations we have in church, in the rules that we've learned how to follow, in the discipline that we've formed, and the fact that we know we're the good group of people and everyone else is the bad group of people. And our confidence and hope is so wrapped up in that that when Jesus himself comes along and says, I'm here to free you, they say, we don't want your freedom. We don't want your easy burden and yoke and they kill him for it. And there's a lot of parallels that we see even between oftentimes what the wrong kind of religion looks like and something like politics. Because many of us find our hope and our confidence in the politics of how this world should be led, of how things are going. And so everything that happens with us, whether it's a virus, whether it's the weather, whether it's education, whether it's the way things are going for our family, whatever it may be, whether it's how much gas costs or anything, we look and we say, I know that this ultimately comes down to some kind of a political issue, and that's the thing that I'm going to invest myself in. That's the thing I'm going to stress about. That's the thing that puts me at odds with whoever's on the other side of it, and gives me an innumerable amount of enemies in this world. There are so many things that we choose to put our confidence and our hope in much of the time. But what the psalmist is telling us is they're saying, rather than, they're reminding themselves and the people around them on this journey to the Holy Land, they're saying the good news for us, the people of God, is that we who trust in him have a confidence and a hope that is so firm and unshakable that we are like the very mountains. He goes on to even say, we are surrounded by mountains, meaning that God himself is protecting us, that we are protected from our enemies and that which would hurt us in the front, in the back, on the left, and on the right. He has got us covered all the way around. We need only trust him and put our confidence in him, and we will experience that. This is what confidence gives us. It gives us an ability to have stability and hope. 
And I don't know about you, but I look in the world in which we live today, and I think we are in desperate, desperate need of stability and of hope. And we will not find it anywhere but in God himself. This is what we see from the psalmist on their way to the holy city as they ascend the mountain of the Lord. So if it's this important, if it's this is what it gives, then why exactly do we need it? There's three reasons why we need this hope of God. Three reasons. We read this in, uh, in the next verse. For the scepter of the wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. You see, the scepter is the thing that a person in royalty and power would hold, and it signifies their rule and their authority. Now, some people, like, went around beating people with them. They, uh, some people just had very nicely decorated scepters, and uh, it was more something they would just hold when they sit on the throne. But regardless, a scepter symbolizes authority and power. What the psalmist is saying is they're saying that because of God's, uh, who he is and how great he is, that they don't have to worry that the scepter of the wickedness will rest on the land allotted to the righteous. That there will not be a point when the truly wicked will truly rule over you and me. That will not happen to us. And he, and he is, it goes on to indicate that if it did happen, what he's talking about is he's saying you would know that it happened because the righteous would stretch out their hands to do wrong. So here's what the psalmist is saying. They're saying that, like, there could be a situation, we fear, in which things would get so bad in the world that the evil and the wicked would be in such a position of power and the ability to rule. Things would get so bad that we would ultimately, the people of God, the good people, would ultimately just give up. They would stretch out their hand and they would simply choose to do wrong from that point forward. The first reason why we need this confidence in God is simple, so that we won't give up. If we trust in who God is, we will keep going. Our faith will carry us through, and we will not find ourselves in despair, and we will not give up and walk away no matter how bad things might seem. We will not give in to the cynicism and the pessimism and the despair that we might experience around us, but we will instead be able to continue going because of who God is. We don't need to give up no matter what comes along. Giving up isn't something that I think happens in a dramatic way. I think what it looks like to give up is to simply say, I can't trust in God anymore, and so I'm going to begin trusting in the things that others around me trusted. It simply isn't going to work to live this way anymore. I'm going to look for relief and confidence in the things everyone around me may be looking for those things in. That's what it looks like to give up. It's not necessarily the dramatic despair and hopelessness that we often theme, seem to think, although that can happen, and that does happen with people. It's what happens when we say, even though I know this to be true of God, I will live as though I need a foundation that is now rooted in something else. There are times 
when some of us will be tempted, when all of us will be tempted to just give up. We will look at things going on in our own personal lives or in the world around us, and we will just be like, I just think, I don't think I can do this anymore. I don't think that I can hang in there anymore. I don't think that I can have hope in the things that I had hope in before. But the good news this psalmist tells us is that we don't have to fear and worry um, that the scepter of the wicked will ultimately rest upon us and that we will have no choice but to do evil. That God will never let us get to a point where that will happen. And this is very similar to kind of the other reason why we need it. And we read about it if we go on. Uh, the psalmist is, is, is kind of moving from celebrating something to kind of asking God to do something that they trust God is going to do. And it has to do with rewarding the good and punishing the evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. See, this person is indicating as they talk that... They need the reminder. They need the encouragement of knowing that those who are seeking to do good for the Lord will be rewarded from the Lord. And that, and that ultimately those who are seeking to do evil, that wickedness and that injustice and that deception will ultimately be punished. They are looking for justice. They are looking for the righteousness of God in himself. The other reason why we need it is not just that we won't give, it, give up, but also that we won't give in. And I know, it's like, wait, that's like one word. How different is that really? I think there's two ways that we go about being overwhelmed by the things of the world. And when we don't trust in God, this is what we begin to see in lives. One is to just simply give up and walk away. To say, I'm done, I give up, I can't do this anymore. The other is to give in to the wickedness that the psalmist talks about. To actually give in and begin to choose to live in wickedness, to sin, to do things that we know we shouldn't do, that we know we're not supposed to do, because we just feel like the temptation has gotten too strong. The world has gotten too difficult to live in. Things have gotten way too out of hand and way too messy. It now just makes sense that we behave like everybody else. This is the constant temptation of the one who is seeking to trust in the Lord. And this is why we need that trust so much. We read here about people who are sort of on these different paths. Uh, there are the straight main highways, and then there are the crooked paths of the wicked and the evildoers. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read about this idea of a good life being one that is led in a straight path. So the right life, the way of God, is to live on a path that is pretty straight. And the path of evilness or the wickedness is one that is crooked or bent. The idea being that um, they are uh, impacted by everything that happens around them and they're constantly changing what they're doing based on that thing. Uh, they don't have something guiding them in a straight direction. And so the wicked or the foolish, we read about in Proverbs and in other things, are often uh, those who are on crooked paths. You read about it throughout the Old Testament, uh, both in prophecy and then sometimes recounting what's already happened. In, the, uh, in Judges, you read in, in Judges 5, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. There's the highway, uh, which is like, you know, when everything shut down a while ago, right? 
Uh, it's weird to go out and to see how empty the freeways can get, to see how empty things can be. It's a sign of bad things happening. Life has shut down. Things aren't going well. And when that happens, you have to be careful with who is out there and the people that would choose to go on the byways because they're usually people who were trying to do things that were going to get them in trouble. You read in Proverbs, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. You read in Lamentations, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. It talks about um, the actual roads leading to Zion and the bad state of those roads, the, the fact that people can't be safe on those roads and that they're empty at different times. In Isaiah, we read this prophesy, the highways lie waste, the traveler ceases, covenants are broken, cities are despised, there is no regard for man, the land mourns and languishes. What all of these things are alluding to is the fact that there are these crooked paths that we can choose to walk upon. We can go off of the highway, the road of God, on the way to the holy city, and we can detour. And oftentimes, the reason why we do that is because we just lose trust and hope. We, we allow our eyes to drift away from the real source of our confidence, and because of that, we begin to give in. We begin to do things. We say, it's okay for me to now live like everyone else. The straight road is what the Israelite would call shalom. It is the good life. It is peace. It is true uh, fulfillment. It is true righteousness. It is true holiness. It is true goodness. And if you don't believe that the wickedness that you might be experiencing is temporary, if you don't believe that the wickedness you might be experiencing is temporary, you're going to be tempted to stretch out your hand and do wrong. You're going to be tempted to give in to wickedness because it's just plain easier. You're going to give in to cynicism because it's just easier. You're going to give in to materialism and you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to just do what everybody else seems to do and I'm just going to buy my way out of what I'm going through right now. Maybe if I get enough stuff, maybe if I move some things around, maybe if I make some better plans about things, then what I'm going to do is be more comfortable. What I'm going to do is not have to think about what's going on, and I'm going to have a much better time. You say, you know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to retaliate because that's literally what everyone else seems to do. It is perfectly understandable in the world in which we live that when you are wronged by someone else, you retaliate. As we talked about last week, the only thing more understandable than that is that you defend yourself. Defending myself is the most understandable thing and everyone will agree with me being able to do it, it seems. And giving into wickedness is to say, you know what? It's totally fine for me to retaliate. It's totally fine for me to repay evil for evil, to repay harshness for harshness, to uh, instead of showing love and instead of showing forgiveness and seeking to continue to live as someone who trusts in the Lord themselves, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give in to the coping that I know is so easy to give into. I'm going to look to just all kinds of other things to just make me not have to live in this moment going through this thing that I'm going through right now. I'm going to give into the, the divisiveness, the tribalism. I'm going, to, I'm going to give in to dividing 
into group after group after group after group and identifying the enemy that I'm going to now be against so that I can now be a part of some other group. And as a result of that, I'm going to feel finally a little bit more in control, a little bit safer as a result of what's going on. Without the hope and trust and the confidence that we have in who God is that the psalmist tells us about in Psalm 125, we will be tempted again and again to give in to these things. And the only thing that will keep us from ultimately giving in to them is not our, our self-will, it's not our discipline, it's not our own effort. It is how much we ultimately trust and hope and have confidence in who God is. Paul talks about this, and he encourages the church in 1 Corinthians. He says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. To trust who God is is to trust these words. To trust that no matter what I might be dealing with right now, that because of who God is, not because of my own discipline and not because of my own will and not because of how awesome I am as a person, but because of who God is, I know that the wickedness is temporary, the pain is temporary, and ultimately this is not the place that is called to be my true home. And because of that, I know that whatever it is that I am experiencing right now, it is not more than I can bear. And I do not have to choose to live through it as someone who wouldn't trust God. The last reason why we need it is because what confidence in God tells us is that God is the same no matter how we feel. Having this trust and this confidence in God tells us that no matter how I may feel when I wake up tomorrow, he is still the same. And the things he says are still true. One author, Eugene Peterson, says it this way. He says, my security comes from who God is, not from how I feel. Discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God, not by what I feel about him or myself or my neighbor's. Now, I'll say this as a person who has a lot of feelings, you know, as, as they say, I feel all the feels. I think that's what people say, right? If anything, I struggle in my life with not being often overwhelmed by how I will feel about a certain thing, either positively or negatively. I have struggled with anxiety for so much of my life, irrational fears and concerns about things that are not grounded in reality. I have felt the depression that I didn't know where it came from, and half the time I ended up figuring it out, and half the time I didn't end up figuring it out. I have experienced reading something in God's Word and completely connecting with that thing and resonating with it and, and feeling it's so easy to believe that thing one day and reading it a few days later and wondering how on earth I could believe something like that because of how I felt. So I am not saying that we are to be people who have no feelings, who never think about our feelings, who never work through and process our feelings or anything like that. What I'm saying is our feelings are incredibly unpredictable and our circumstances around us are even more unpredictable. And because of that, so much of the time, what we believe about God and about what he tells us is shaped by those things. And the good news about the confidence we have in God 
when we really do trust in him and not in other things, is that he is the same no matter how we feel about him. You may feel like you are in the lowest place that you've been at with God for a long time here today. And I'm here to tell you the good news that that doesn't change who he is. And you may feel great about God today. And I say that is great. Praise God for that. But if the day comes when you don't feel like that, it doesn't mean that God changed. This is one of those things that like, I think we hear it and we go, yeah, okay, obviously he doesn't change depending on how I feel until you're in the moment where you begin to feel very bad about the situation that you're in or about the things that you're experiencing in the world or just about what God says about himself. You don't like what it means. You don't like how it makes you feel in a given time. But the good news is he is the same no matter what. Uh, British pastor from long ago says this. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? As good as it is to process and understand our emotions and our feelings, and I do think that's an important thing for us to do, being completely out of touch with those things makes us really difficult, especially to deal with with other people. But... Uh, it is easy to listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. And this is why as we go back to these Psalms of Ascent, what we find again and again is these are words that are being spoken by people sometimes directly to God, but sometimes they're being spoken to other people on the journey with them. I am reminding you, my brother or sister in Christ, about this thing about God that I think you need to hear and that you need to know is true, even though it couldn't be further from the way that you feel right now. And to me, somebody who feels a lot, this is incredibly good news. That because of who God is, he's bigger than just the way I might feel about him or about things today. My anxieties, my depressions, my jealousy and my resentments, my anger at things, my low self-esteem, my competitive nature that makes me feel maybe like a failure sometimes and things don't go my way. The ups and downs of life are real. Theologians often refer to something called the sawtooth faith of the Israelites. Basically, it's this. There you go. You now understand this incredibly complex idea, the sawtooth faith of the Israelites. The Israelites continually experienced incredible moments of joy and wonderful blessings and abundance and great circumstances. And they continually also experienced dramatic lows, pain and suffering, enslavement, and all kinds of situations that were so difficult for them to deal with and live in. Situations they didn't fully understand. What was consistent throughout is that God continued to say the same things about himself. And their choice as a people was, are we going to continue to trust that God is who he says he is when I'm down here? Just like it's easy for me to trust him when I'm up here. I think a lot of us can relate to this as what it is to live the Christian life, to be a pilgrim and a sojourner on this journey to the holy city that we're on. And God is the same no matter how we feel forever. We read that word in this psalm that the good things of the Lord are forever things. They are not temporary things. And that is incredibly good news.
So the last question is how do we get it? How do we get this trust and this confidence in the Lord? How do we have it? In order to experience all these benefits, in order to get these things that I think that we all need, especially in the world in which we live today. Again, we read this in, in, uh, in uh, there it is, at the end of our, of our psalm. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So again, what the psalmist is saying is they're saying something incredibly important about God, and it is this. Ours is a just God. Ours is a God who will punish the wicked and will reward the righteous. Ours is a God who says, just because I tell you to forgive and I tell you that you don't need to defend yourself, it does not mean that those who are doing evil will not be punished in the end. That what we read about in Scripture again and again is about a God of justice. A God who sees the good and says, that is something that I love and that I desire, and that is something that he richly rewards. And that God sees the evil and the corrupt and he punishes. That is one of the incredibly important things that we hear about God again and again in Scripture. That we can have confidence that even though ours is a faith where we talk a lot about grace that that does not mean that evil will go unpunished. One of the hardest things for us is dealing with this concept in the world in which we live, wanting to see evil punished, wanting to see good rewarded. And so what we see in these words is very simple. If you want to be one of God's people, if you want to be someone who gets to live in the confidence of knowing that he's on your side and that he is giving stability in your life in the way that you desire, if you read this psalm, the good news is this. All you have to do is be good. And if you're good, if you're really good, then God will be someone that you can trust in. That's it. So let's just do that today. I want you all to go, and I want you to be as good as you can, okay? I want you to work hard. I want you to just, you know, we'll, do, we'll start tomorrow morning. We'll do a fresh start, okay? You can go get all the craziness out today. Have a crazy pool party in the baptismal. Do all kinds of stuff out there. And then wake up in the morning, and I want you to do your very best. And I want you to show God that you can be truly good. And then he will reward you. He will reward you with good things, with righteousness, and you will know that you're covered by him, that your confidence can be in him and your trust can be in him. I mean, look at Jesus, for example, right? Jesus was perfect. Jesus lived the perfect life. We're supposed to look at Jesus as an example of what to do. So let's all go out and live like Jesus and be like Jesus and do all the good things that he did, and then God will uh, reward us, right? And the kids are coming in, they're going, wait a second, is this what they talk about in here? The only problem with that, though, is that Jesus did do all of the right things. He did live perfectly. Even when he didn't really want to do something, he went to God and he said, God, is there any way that you can take this from me? Is there any way that we can accomplish what you want without me having to go through some really difficult pain and suffering? But if not, God, your will be done. He was even willing to do that. And look at what Jesus received for all of the good that he did and how perfect he was. He was killed as a criminal. Wait a second. How does that line up? Well, this is why. 
Jesus went through all of what he went through, the torture and the pain and the suffering that he did not deserve, to take your place so that if you only trust in him and if you have confidence in him and if you believe that it is by faith in him and a relationship with him and nothing else, if you believe that and trust that today, then that means that what he did in dying, in taking on the penalty, was he took the punishment from a just God for all of the messed up things that you've done, and you now can trust in and enjoy the benefits of living in the confidence of this God who makes you as a mountain who is not moved. If you are somebody today who has trusted in Jesus, if you are a Christian, and you recognize that you are not a Christian because you do good things, and that makes you one of the good guys and everyone else the bad guy, but you recognize that you are a Christian because you have a relationship with God, because you trust that Jesus was the one that paid the penalty for your sin. That you acknowledge and say, God, I trust that Jesus did that. But I also trust, God, that I can do nothing to earn my way back to you by my own effort. Most of us would say, and boy, did I try. Some of us would say, I didn't even try. They always have the crazier, more interesting testimonies, maybe. But to say, God, I recognize there is absolutely nothing that I can do to earn my way back. There's just nothing. I cannot be good enough. I cannot be right enough. I have tried so many times. So I guess I will not get to experience trust and confidence in you. And the good news is because of what Jesus did. To acknowledge that we understand that we are sinners without hope. To then say, I accept that Jesus stands in my place. That he stands in my place, he takes on my sin, and because of that that I can have trust and hope in God from this point on. If you've made that decision, then I tell you that the choice moving forward today is this, to continue to bring yourself back to these truths about God as much as you possibly can. And instead of being tempted to drift into building your hope and your confidence on what everyone else around you is building their confidence and their hope in today, to say, no, I will continue to stay on this path to the holy city. And I will continue to trust that God is who he says he is and that my confidence in him is well-placed. It's not an easy thing to do with all the things going on around us in this world. But it is what we do. And if you have not chosen to follow Jesus, then there is absolutely no bigger mistake that you could ever make than by not choosing to do that. Than to say, no, it's okay, I'll figure this all out on my own. No, it's okay, I will go out there and I will find the right side to be on and I will fight the good fight and I will defend and I will protect and I will find these other things that I can put my trust and my hope in that might feel a little bit more tangible to me. That is the greatest mistake that you can make. Instead, what I urge you to do is today, here, here today, as we are gathered together in the Lord's house, as we celebrate that faith by baptism, you can get baptized today. We say that we recognize that all you have to do is live 15 minutes of life right now in order to realize that there is absolutely nothing there is nothing that we can reasonably and honestly say that we can put our hope and our confidence in that even comes close to comparing to what we read about in this one psalm of ascent.
I want to pray and I want to enter into some time of worship. And if you are someone who has not chosen to follow Jesus, if you have never made that decision, I want to encourage you and invite you to do that today. I want you to pray with me right now as I, as I close. And I want you to pray these words to yourself. And I want you to pray these words to God. And I want you to accept and receive his forgiveness. And if you're, if you're middle school and up, then I think you should get baptized. I may not have a t-shirt for you. And you may have to take your shoes off. But I can tell you that there is no greater choice that you can make than to do that today. We have a great and holy and powerful God who we trust in and are confident in. And no matter how things get in this world, we don't have to give up. We do not have to give in. And he is the same no matter how we might feel and how those feelings might change. Let's pray. God.